because if no one's going to read it, you might as well write a journal, right? You want to write something because you want people to read it because you want to help them. So it's really important that you get it into the hands of people and actually often thinking about how you're going to do that is not something you do at the end of the process. If you do that early on in the process, it makes all the difference to how real your book feels. A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and a motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. If you want to love what you do, if you're looking to have a more creative and fulfilling life, I think you'll enjoy this interview with today's guest, Beth Kempton. Beth is the author of four books, soon to be five. The book she sent me, her most recent book is Calm Christmas and a Happy New Year, a little book of festive joy. I've enjoyed this book. It has given me some ideas that I will carry with me into this holiday season to enjoy the Christmas season more than I probably would, which a mini confession here, I don't always enjoy Christmas. <laughs> I'm not a bah humbug guy, but Beth's first book is called Freedom Seeker. Live more, worry less, do what you love. Her next book was Wabi Sabi, Japanese wisdom for a perfectly imperfect life. And she wrote a book called We Are In This Together, finding hope and opportunity in the depths of adversity, all about what the heck is going on while we're here together in this pandemic, but we're not together, but we're kind of together. So Beth is a prolific author. She is a Japanologist. She has a master's degree in Japanese. She has traveled and studied broadly in that country. And in this interview, we cover a lot of different things. We cover some different practices from the Japanese culture, some different perspectives. We talk about forest bathing. We talk about wabi-sabi, the fact that life is somehow perfectly imperfect, what that means for us, how we can use that insight to have a more fulfilling life. And we talk a little bit about Christmas, we talk about some strategies to be a more conscious gift giver, to reduce the stress, to just enjoy the season more than we might otherwise, and to get through it in a way that positions us to have a fantastic new year. In this interview, Beth is very generous in sharing some of her insights as an accomplished writer. Beth does have a book proposal masterclass. So when we get to the final part of the interview where I ask about writing and creativity, Beth actually coaches me a bit on my own book project, one that I've been involved with, I might even say stuck on, for a little while. So kind of peel back the curtain a little bit on my own creative stew, and Beth gives me some insights and shares some of her experience, gives me some advice that if you are interested in writing a book that makes a difference for others, I think you will find valuable. Beth's book, Wabi Sabi, has been recommended by Time Magazine, British Vogue, and Psychology Magazine. Apple USA called it a must-listen audiobook. And if you want to learn more from Beth, you can find her online at bethkempton.com. Her company website is dowhatyouloveforlife.com. 
or you can find her on Instagram at Beth Kempton. With that, I hope you enjoy and benefit from this conversation with my new friend, Beth Kempton. Beth, welcome to the School for Good Living. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. It is my pleasure. Beth, will you tell me, please, what is life about? (laughs) What a way to start a conversation. Goodness me. I have to say I spend a lot of my life thinking about these kinds of things. And I think it's about our experience in the dance of nature, both as active, conscious creators and as passive, open-hearted witnesses to this great unfolding, because it is both those things, I think, We have a lot of agency as intelligent human beings and we can, for significant extents, design life and navigate with will and intention. But also, we are part of this enormous thing that is happening all the time, with or without our participation. And I think that's the real beauty, that we are both of those things and that life is both of those things. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. And when you mentioned nature, so I'm going to just jump right into this. You've got a deep background in Japan, Japanese culture, Japanese language. And I know that you are a practitioner of something called Shinrin-yoku. Maybe we can start there with your mention of nature. What is Shinrin-yoku? Am I saying it correctly? And <laughs> You're saying it beautifully. You're saying it like someone who has spent some time around Japanese people and the language. Yes. This yes. I've had the privilege to study and travel in Japan. I had a dream when I was a child that inspired me to study the language when I got into college and had a language requirement. The dream stayed with me. Yeah, I love the country, oh. but I have not engaged in this practice. But maybe you can start at this point. Sure. Shinrin-yoku is, it translates as forest bathing. And that sounds a little bit strange, but if you imagine when you sunbathing, you expose yourself, your skin and your senses to the warmth and the light of the sun. And forest bathing is very similar. It's exposing your, not necessarily exposing your skin in the forest, but you could do, but very much exposing your senses to the nature that is in the forest, very much the trees, but there are many other things living in the forest. And it's kind of opening up to a conversation with the forest and slowing down to the pace of the forest and using it as a mindful opportunity to notice what is happening in nature, notice the beauty of nature, notice how we are reflected in nature and we are part of nature. And there are very practical ways you can do it. And in recent years, I think the reason it has become very popular, particularly in Korea and Japan, and then more recently in America and in Europe, is because there is scientific proof that spending time around trees and the other things that live and thrive in the forest is very good for us. And as soon as there's science to back it up, everyone jumps on it. But to be fair, human beings have been spending time in forests and going on retreats in forests for as long as there have been human beings. I think what Shinrin-yoku does is opens up the medicine of the forest to everyone, including people who need the data to make it worth their time. And in Japan, there are many trained, licensed forest therapy practitioners who can lead you through ancient forests and through some newer forests. This beautiful meditative practice, and there are designated bathing forests all over Japan as well. It sounds so beautiful, especially after having been 
cooped up at home for months on end <laughs> to have an experience of an ancient forest. I'm imagining the silence and yeah. the pristine nature and the smells of the trees. It sounds remarkable. Yeah, you know, I had some very interesting experiences in Japan with forest bathing. One that really sticks in my mind is lying on the snow and looking up at the sky and watching what is going on in these bare silhouetted trees above me and these birds jumping around and just such contrast in the colours. And also obviously feeling quite cold behind me, but the sky was so blue, it felt warm above me. And you just really tuned in and noticed all those things. And I realised you can do that anywhere. You can walk to your local park and lie down on the grass and look at the sky. You can do it in your own garden. And yes, it, as with something like yoga, it's fantastic to learn how to do it safely and some techniques and the background and the philosophy of it from a skilled teacher. But you can also just do it at home, especially when you've had that experience. So having to go to Japan shouldn't get in the way of trying it. It's really just spending time near particularly trees. They're so good for us as human beings to be close, to touch them, to walk in their presence and to really use all your senses to see what is going on. Because I think often if you don't grow up in a rural environment, the countryside is something over there and forest is a useful resource for trees, which we use to make paper and build houses and all those things. And it's almost like a static place in our imaginations, but actually they're completely alive, as is every other small green space wherever you live, even in the middle of the city. So there's some beautiful principles within that that I think it's really lovely to take home and to think about how can I, wherever I am, use these ideas about connecting with nature just to slow down and tune in in the middle of my busy day. It's a wonderful thing to do with children as well. And often they'll notice things that you wouldn't notice. But I think also encouraging them to be quiet for a little while in a forest. It's amazing what they see because they're obviously at a different level to you. And they notice things that where you're looking up at the trees, maybe they're looking down at the ants or whatever it is. That's really beautiful. And I think there's something that's not surprising. I mean, at first glance, it's not intuitive to me, at least that Japan would be a country where this was such a thing. But to see, you know, having lived and traveled in Japan and seeing how much of it has been built over, you know, even reclaimed islands. Tokyo Disney is built on reclaimed island and all the concrete and the metal in the glass that when we separate ourselves from nature, I think that yearning intensifies. So, of course, <laughs> forest bathing would become a thing in a country that's so industrialized, you know, so modern. Yes, it's such a good observation. It's something I've really battled with, to be honest, because if you look at literature and poetry over the centuries in Japan, there is such reverence for nature and such a connection to it. You know, they have 72 seasons in the Japanese calendar. There's a new season every five days and it infiltrates every area of the life from food, to festivities, to everything, to the clothes that people wear if they really stick with the you know, traditional kimono change all throughout the year, whatever you're wearing. And that is absolutely real and is a part of how people live. And yet, just as you said, so much is concreted over. It's very difficult to find a view that doesn't have a pylon and wires in the sky. And it can be really difficult to look at those things and figure out how do these 
coexist in the minds of the same population. But when you talk to Japanese people about it, it's very interesting. Some people say that there was a kind of blind following of what the government said after the war and the, everyone got on board this urgent need to industrialize. And this was all seen as progress. Anything the West was doing was a good thing. And, you know, Japan is very mountainous. It's difficult to farm a lot of it. And they're building big roads to allow different kinds of industry to thrive. It kind of makes sense from an economic point of view. And I know a lot of Japanese people who really see that there are difficulties with that kind of blind trust. And much of that has gone away. And people are not necessarily happy about that. But also, it's the flip side of the Japanese aesthetic, innate aesthetic sense, which allows them to see beauty in the tiniest things. And, you know, this one gorgeous flower in the middle of a concrete wall to then also not see the concrete wall. And so I could be standing next to a Japanese friend and we're both looking out over these mountains. And I'll say, what do you think about that pylon? They're like, what pylon? Oh, that pylon. And so I've seen the pylon first and they've seen the mountain first. It's very interesting. And I think that is to do with just this very unusual, beautiful aesthetic sense that many, many Japanese yeah. people have. I, I think you're right. And I think about something that you know I noticed when I was in Japan, which is if you ask a group of people to go in a room and sit down and there's no furniture in the room, the Japanese will sit on the floor, but the Americans will say, where should I sit? <laughs> you know, the way even an empty room occurs for someone is different or can be different just culturally and how different that orientation, like you're saying, you know, someone in Japan might tend to see the beauty or nature first, where we would see maybe the blight or the man-made things first. It's so true. And in that empty room, you know, if there's then a low table for feasting and there's an alcove with beautiful flowers in it, and there's a very important boss of a company who's the host, and then there's the boss of another company who's the guest, it's very possible that the boss of the hosting company would be in the West would be given the best position in the room. But in Japan, absolutely no question, the guest would get the most important position in the room, which is often the best view, you know, the view of whatever beautiful arrangement has been made in that otherwise empty room. And it is very interesting to, to ponder these things. And I think it's not that anything is right and the other one is wrong. There are just a lot of clues to the way people think differently. And there are things we can all learn from each other. Yeah, no, no question. And knowing that so much of your work and your life has been influenced by traditional Japanese culture and philosophy, I understand your second book was about, in fact, the title Wabi Sabi. Right. I wonder if you'll take a moment for anybody listening who might not be familiar with that term, if you'll tell us a little bit about what that is and maybe why did you decide to write an entire book about that? Well, it's a very good question. If you consider the fact that when I wrote it, I didn't know exactly what Wabi Sabi was. <laughs> and the reason I didn't know exactly what Wabi Sabi was is because firstly, there's no definition in the Japanese dictionary, even though it's a very, very important term in Japanese culture. That is so typical. So typical. <laughs> Can you imagine a word in English that we all understand innately and it's part of the way that we walk through the world and it's not a slang word and we it's not in a dictionary. Yeah. I mean, I can think of words that we think we know what they mean, like love or God, but the fact that wabi-sabi is not even in the dictionary. Yeah. So it's like, it's like as if the word love wasn't in the dictionary. That's exactly what it's like. Yeah. 
But it's a word that I don't even remember the first time I heard it. I think it's like I absorbed it by osmosis in my many years living in Japan. It is also a word that has been very misunderstood in the West and has been written about quite a lot, actually, but has often been misused as an adjective to describe objects which have a particular imperfect beauty. It's not to say it's nothing to do with that. It absolutely is something to do with that. But Japanese people don't use the term wabi-sabi as an adjective. And so just the fact that I understood that we'd all got it quite wrong was very interesting to me. And I, a kind of combination of many things in terms of why I decided to write about it. When I did as well, I think I could have written this book any time in the last 20 years. But now, a couple of years ago, when I was writing it was the time because there was just this increasing sense that we were rushing and pushing and striving for some kind of perfection as if somebody was telling us this is the way we have to live our lives. There is no one person telling us that. And yet somehow collectively we've got sucked into this idea that it's all achievement and this constant forward motion towards something which is perfect. And then when we've reached that, that will be it done. And then, I don't know, then what? Do we get on with the rest of our life? I'm not sure. (laughs) I'm sure you know (laughs) what I mean. Just this pressure, I think, has been increased so many times in the past few years because of the unbelievable influence of social media and the fact that such a large percentage of the entire world is on social media and sharing their life on social media. And so before, maybe we had ideas about other people's lives from books or from television. And, you know, maybe we took that with a pinch of salt because, you know, somebody's written a novel or, well, it's the television. But when you see somebody posting pictures from their living room or, you know, them at their desk at work talking about their amazing job and their perfect face on the screen, you kind of assume that that's the reality and that this social media fueled conversation about perfection was just all pervasive at one point. I think there has been some stepping away from it in the last couple of years, but there definitely got to a point where it was everything was about image and that's dangerous and a very big focus on money too and achievement and all these things. And I just had this sense that there was something in Japanese culture that was different. There's like an essence of the beauty that has hovered over the centuries still lingers in 21st century Japan. It's really hard to put your finger on it, but it sounds like you've experienced it. And it appears in beauty, it appears in the language, it appears in the way people are so polite, but also so understanding without necessarily sharing words that you would think would lead to that understanding. And there's this incredible calm, especially in a big city like Tokyo. I lived there for a few years and for such a huge city, which is so technologically advanced, so many enormous flashing neon signs, so many cars, high-speed bullet train, all these things, there's an unbelievable sense of calm in that city. And trying to figure out what it was underneath all that. And I had this sense that I could feel but didn't really understand that perhaps Wabi Sabi was connected to whatever this thing is. And so I wanted to investigate. And so I did some research enough to understand that it is very much connected to the way Japanese people walk through the world and see the world and experience the world. And yet no one has quite been able to explain it in a way that is valuable to people living in the West in this time when we most need this 
really important old wisdom. And so I set about, it really was a journey to discover what it meant. And when I had my book deal, I didn't have an answer. I said, this is what I know, and this is what I want to find out. And this is why we all need to know about this. And so it was very much an uncovering as I was writing, which was what made it so fascinating. But I haven't actually said what it is, of course. (laughs) (laughs) And so... That's no surprise. (laughs) That's a very roundabout way of saying there is no specific definition, because I think for a Westerner to assume that I could define something that's not in a Japanese dictionary would be very arrogant. But from so many conversations with Japanese people from all walks of life and so many experiences over two decades in Japan, I've come to understand that Wabi Sabi is about the impermanent, imperfect, incomplete nature of everything and what that can teach us about life. It's a recognition of the gifts of a simple life and is absolutely intertwined with our relationship with nature. And this is one thing I hadn't really heard anyone else saying, but it's a vital part of Wabi Sabi is that it's an intuitive response to a particular kind of beauty which reminds us of that truth of the impermanent, imperfect, incomplete nature of everything. Which is why I think Westerners had come to use Wabi Sabi as an adjective to describe things like a worn old farmhouse table. Because perhaps a Japanese person who couldn't explain it to them pointed at the table and said Wabi Sabi. But actually what it was is that looking at that object makes them feel a certain way and have a certain experience. And the Wabi Sabi resides within the experience, not within the object. So it's less about what we see and more about how we see. Yeah, I think that's so remarkable, the way that there are things right in front of us, truths, experiences, you know, opportunities, objects that we don't necessarily understand. And the way you describe that about saying there was something you could feel but didn't really understand. As I hear you describe Wabi Sabi and how you came to it and why you wrote a book about it, I'm thinking that there's this kind of intuitive yearning for that, that simple life and understanding, you know, each individual has a yearning to understand or experience more fully that, which is why I think this is my hypothesis that this is why tidying up with Marie Kondo has become so popular on Netflix. (laughs) I mean, there's so many things about it, about the way in which these objects, our clothes, our books, our possessions in some way they are alive, you know, and we can thank them for the services they've rendered and we hold on to them where we keep them dear if they do spark joy, but when they don't, we'll let them go and so forth. But exactly what you're saying, I think that's what's underneath the broad adoption of this approach. I don't know that it's just a phase or like a fad or a craze. What do you think? Yes, I love that. And I think absolutely there is a collective yearning in the human race right now for something better, for something more simple, for something kinder, for something more compassionate. I think for more beauty in our lives, a lot of what we buy and surround ourselves with is stuff that we think is beautiful, but perhaps at the point that we buy it in some way without really thinking about what we mean by beauty and that whether that in the same way that the shine disappears over time and then it's no longer what it was, well, actually, maybe that's when it starts to become interesting. I think there's a yearning for the unknown because we understand that we have a capacity to know so much more than we currently do. Things like the internet are making that clear to us, but it's all in the brain. It's all the mind, it's thinking. And actually we need more living from the heart and using our hearts to guide us through the world. I think 21st century humans think too much. Guilty, I'm guilty. (laughs) 
Yeah, I agree. And to even think that some other way is possible, a way of being, a way of existing in the world. And this again is where I look to Asian cultures in particular, not as an alternative, but at least as, you know, a potential Maybe it is an alternative. And I look at a word like kokoro in Japanese where this is often translated as heart, right? Or what's the word for mind? Shin in Japanese? That's a way of saying the same character. But kokoro is actually the name of my next book. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. (laughs) That's hilarious. Yeah. Actually, no, that's quite magical. So kokoro means heart, mind, spirit, dot, dot, dot. So for that book, my journey is to get to the heart of what the word kokoro actually is about living much more connected to your heart, but not necessarily heart in quite the way we use it in English, and also just exploring the true nature of time. And it's fascinating. I'm still in that research journey at the moment, but kokoro means heart, but it's a completely different word to the word for the organ heart. There are many different ways to say heart in Japanese. And so it's very interesting to me that they have one word which represents this kind of combination of heart, mind and spirit. And decisions take place in different parts in the body in Japan to the way that we would necessarily say them. There's so much there to explore. You know, we're all human beings with bodies that look and work the same. And yet we have experiences of the big questions in life and navigating life in different parts of the body. How interesting is that? Well, say a little more about that, right? Because the closest I have is when I think back to, I don't even know the period in England when there were the humors, like bile. (laughs) I think there were four. I don't know if you know. No, tell me. There's melancholy was one. Oh, goodness. Is that like Shakespeare's time or something? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I forget. But when you say that in Japan, like traditionally or historically, or maybe even currently, there's this belief or understanding that different decisions are made in different parts of the body. I don't even have any reference. I mean, I go, oh yeah, I can make a decision with my head or I can make a decision with my heart. But when the Japanese say different decisions are made in different parts of the body, what what do they mean? Will you give us some examples? Well, there's all sorts of body references in the Japanese language, but for one that just comes to mind right away, and it's not so much a decision, but you say haragatatsu, which means my stomach stands up when you're angry. But when I'm angry in the West, I feel tension maybe in my hands or in my shoulders or maybe clenching my teeth or I might sometimes get a kind of tightness in my stomach, but I don't think it would in a hundred years come to me to say my stomach is standing up. But I totally get it. (laughs) (laughs) It's so interesting. And then you're like, oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah." And so, I mean, I'm going to go into that in a lot of detail in my next book, but there are so many of these words where it's very easy for it to be a throwaway word that you learn in the vocabulary list when you're learning a foreign language, but you could take one of a thousand words and explore it in ways that is not so much for people who don't speak Japanese to understand the word because that matters, but for them to understand their own life with a different lens. So I can't tell you how many people have written to me and said, with Wabi Sabi, you gave me a word for something I have known all my life but couldn't describe. And I do think in most people's case, that, that refers to this intuitive response to beauty that reminds us of the passing time in life. And that you don't really need to understand what Japanese people think wabi-sabi means if it gives you language for something that matters to you. And I think that's the beauty of looking to other cultures and learning from them. It's how we use that in our own lives. You know, many people who read wabi-sabi and other books about other cultures may never visit those countries, may never speak to a Japanese person, may never even pick up chopsticks and eat a bowl of ramen. But if something that they read 
about the fact that Japanese people have 72 seasons in their traditional calendar. And actually, I really pay attention to the weather every fifth day and see what I'm noticing in my own garden. That's interesting. And that has value. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in a way, like hearing you share that now, I think of a definition I once heard of shamanism, which is to leave the known for the unknown and to bring back something that's a source of healing or help and to be able to go even to another culture and bring language or bring ideas or perspectives and to share those. I think that's a really beautiful and maybe a subtle form of shamanism. It's an honor and it is a huge responsibility and it is really challenging thing to do. I think when you're not from and of that culture and not a native speaker of that language, even if you have studied it for years and years and years and memorized a dictionary and all those things, you will never be native to that language and culture. And so there are some things that you can never know, but there are also some things that you wouldn't know if you were, and you only know because you see them with a different background. And I think both of those things are really important. So we need, in terms of Japan, there's been a huge boom in Japanese novels that are being translated at the moment, super popular. That's wonderful because you see Japan through a Japanese person's eyes. With books like mine, you see Japan through a very interested, committed student of Japanese life, Westerners' eyes, and they offer different things. Yeah. Let me ask you, while we're on the topic of Japan, this is the last question I think I want to ask you about it, at least for right now, which is my own curiosity about, as you're writing this book, Kokoro, Mind, Heart, Spirit, dot, 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 I'm wondering if there's any part of the book, at least in your research now, or just even if it's not in the book, what you've learned about this idea of mushin, of no mind. Yeah, I will report back in a year. (laughs) This is one I'm endlessly fascinated by as I look at different, again, different concepts of spontaneous right action or the Chinese concept of wu wei, you know, non-doing. Yeah, and you can talk to 10 different monks and have 10 different answers for no mind. And I think the only thing I can say with clarity right now is that no mind doesn't mean an empty mind doing nothing. And it's something that sounds incredibly simple and is incredibly deep. And it's also something that's not necessarily natural to somebody who has grown up in Western consumer culture, busy, busy, busy all the time. And so absolutely, that will be explored in the next book. Yeah, which is, I think, part of what will make it so valuable for those you know, who that is their fundamental orientation or the box they're trapped in. Yeah. So, okay. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. I want to switch gears to a discussion. I want to ask a few questions about the book that's about to be released here in the United States. As we record this, it's mid-October 2020. You have a book coming out on the 20th of October here in the States, Calm Christmas and a Happy New Year, A Little Book of Festive Joy. And I've read this book. I have enjoyed this book. I've found a lot of value in it. I want to ask, why did you write a book? So you've gone from books about helping people find and do what they love, books about what you've learned in Japan and this concept of wabi-sabi. And then you've written this book about how we can survive and thrive in the pandemic. And now you've written this book about Calm Christmas. Why did the world need this book? Why did you write this book? Who'd you write it for? What did you want it to do for them? It's brilliant. I think there's a tendency for writers to think that they have to pick a topic and write about that forever, unless you're a novelist, and then you can pick anything you fancy. And there is an underlying theme to my books, which is about living well, about feeling free, about making the most of your life. And in each of them, I explore ways to do that through a different lens. By training, I'm a Japanologist. Wabi Sabi was my second book, and Kokoro will be my fifth book. 
the reason there's other books in between is because the other books take a very long time to research and put together, <laughs> but I love to write. And my first book, Freedom Seeker, was, I think, the book that taught me how to write books. I needed to write that in order to be able to write Wabi Sabi. I had a lot of things I wanted to say about freedom, about the subtitle is live more, worry less, do what you love. And I just felt that as someone who set up a company called Do What You Love 10 years ago, who was teaching online 10 years ago, how to find beauty and joy and balance in your life, doing what you love, regardless of the dissenting voices around you. At a time when hardly anyone was teaching online, never mind teaching those kind of crazy things. I've had so many discussions with people who say, yes, but, yes, but, works for you, but, it's all right for you, but. And I really wanted to just guess all that into a book, which is what Freedom Seeker is all about. And I think the tools and resources in that book are, will be valid for decades. I mean, they're just ways of navigating the world. Wabi Sabi took 20 years to write, essentially, in that it was the gathering of all that experience. And so it was the right time to write it. And I was only ready to write it then. And I will always write books about Japan, but they take a long time. We Are In This Together is a very short book I wrote in 16 days at the beginning of the pandemic. Taking Because essentially what we do with my company, Do What You Love, is help people navigate change. Anyone who isn't doing what they love and wants to do what they love has to go through some kind of change, whether that is cataclysmic and something that happened to them, whether it's a massive decision they've made and a big shift they've made happen for them, or whether it's a series of small steps, there is still an element of change in there. And I was supposed to be going to Japan for a month with my family at the beginning of this year to research Kokoro. And we saw how the pandemic was spreading in China and then started to emerge in Kyoto, which is where we're going to be spending a lot of our time. That was as early as January, when most people were not taking any notice of it at all. We were watching it like hawks. And in the end, we decided to pull out of our trip an hour before the taxi was due at our house to pick us up and take us to the airport to go. And we cancelled our trip before there was any travel advice against going and all of that. So we, I think, were aware of what was coming before a lot of other people and somehow just had a sense of the seriousness of it. I pitched my book the day that England went into lockdown and said people are going to need tools to navigate this crazy sense of instability and figure out what happens next because this virus is going to shake up everything we know. And when you shake up the snow globe and let the pieces land, it doesn't look exactly like it looked before. And we want to get ahead of that and help people explore the value in the stillness that's going to come and also deal with the difficulties that are going to come and to come out of it with hope and a sense of opportunity. And my publisher was amazing and said, go for it. And I wrote it in 16 days. They turned it around. It was published within five weeks of that. So most people wow. are like, how on earth did that come out? We've only just figured out how to buy toilet roll at the supermarket. They've only just restocked. And so that one was just written because I had the tools available to write it. And I suddenly had just this unbelievable sense of urgency to get this done. And often, I'm sure you found and will find with the books that you will write in the future, that when you're really onto something, it just comes. It doesn't come in perfect sentences, but it absolutely just flows out of you. And that's what happened with Ruins Together. Calm Christmas, I would say, is in the beginning. I, I absolutely love Christmas. My eldest daughter was born on Christmas Day. I've loved Christmas since I was a child. But there's a very practical reality about how the kind of big sense of commercialism has just sent things into overdrive in the past few years. And I was hearing so many people completely stressed out, broke by January, putting so much pressure on themselves to make this celebration perfect and hating it. 
and ending up, you know, their children just fighting over too many presents and everyone being exhausted and the family arguing and all these things that one by one are, you know, that's just an inconvenience, uh, you know, not a very nice experience. But when you add them all up and you do this thing year after year, And you put into that the darkness of winter and the fact that that's the loud story of the families who are together. And there's also so many other people that don't see anyone around Christmas, young people and old people, not just old people. I thought that there was something here that no one's really written about what would it be like if we did the holiday season differently. And that doesn't mean like Christmas and the day before and the day after. It means the whole of winter, really. And what if we changed our approach to the holiday season? How would January be different? And then I started digging into the science of it, and it's unbelievable. The mental health statistics around what happens with the holiday season is unbelievable. From one side, the people affected just simply by the weather and the darkness and all of that. The sense of loneliness, sadness, grief, all the things that really bubble up around Christmas time, whether it's because something's happened at Christmas or because Christmas reminds them of things, things that happened in the past, things that won't happen in the future for whatever reason. There's so much of that kind of emotion. And there are so many people who struggle with money. And a lot of those money struggles come from this sense of what Christmas should be. And they're actually just asking a few simple questions can completely change all that and mean that you go into January full of hope and feeling rested and having had some really precious time. And that can affect your entire year. So actually, for the two billion people who celebrate Christmas, if you could get rid of the stress, that makes a massive difference. So it is a little book of festive joy, but I think it's a lot deeper than you might expect. Yeah, this is one of those that I find myself uh, wishing I could just kind of like in the matrix <laughs> when Neo <laughs> says, I know Kung Fu. You could just download it into everyone. I think that the holiday season would not only be less stressful, I think it would be more significant for people because I love the way that you kind of untangle some of the expectations that exist around Christmas and really breaking down the parts of it that matter most to us. And I look at it and I think about how Of course, there's a religious and a faith aspect to this holiday. And there's parts of that that really resonate with me, but then there's parts of that that actually don't. And I just kind of find myself on the sidelines in a lot of regards. That's my experience of Christmas of just going, look, it feels overwhelming, all the people to buy for, and that religious aspect thing. mm, Yeah, I get it, but it's not for me. But when you add these other aspects, maybe you can talk a little bit about these five I don't know what you call them, the five dimensions or five five facets of Christmas. You've got the matrix in your head, the five stories of Christmas. Yeah, so Five stories of Christmas. Yeah. So when I set out to write Calm Christmas, I was very clear that my experience of Christmas is only my experience of Christmas. And I don't know what Christmas is like for other people. So I want to find out. And I spoke to hundreds of people from 37 different countries, all kinds of different religions and people with no religion and so many different backgrounds to share their experiences of Christmas. And it was absolutely fascinating. And I have to say, many of them were strangers. And they told me some unbelievably personal stories, many of which didn't go into the book. And there's something about Christmas, which just connects to something like a poignant memory. It's amazing. 
how people open up when you talk about Christmas, whether they love it or hate it or something in between. I had thousands of data points from these people, from all the questions I'd asked them. And I tried to find a symbol, a single symbol of Christmas that we could all rally around. The kind of thing that you put on the front cover of a Christmas book, right? This happens to have a wreath on it, but that's not because the wreath is a symbol that everybody recognises. There wasn't one. Not everybody eats turkey, not everyone puts up a Christmas tree, not everyone gathers, not everyone gives presents, not everyone sings carols. I was staggered by the fact that we all say Christmas as if we think we're all talking about the same thing and we're absolutely not. But what I did find out, I love looking for patterns. I think it's one of my superpowers, actually, seeing patterns in human behaviour. And I noticed that there were these five stories of Christmas that everybody resonated with to some extent and resonated with one or two of them to a significant extent. And those five stories were the stories of faith, of magic, of connection, of abundance and heritage. So the story of faith, to sum it up very succinctly, would be the religious story of Christmas. The story of magic is Father Christmas and all the so much fascinating history into where that came from. But that beautiful story about the jolly old elf, wherever you think he lives, I think he lives in the North Pole. The story of connection, we see it in the Dickensian Christmas, in A Christmas Carol, in the Victorians who popularised the Christmas tree and Christmas cards and many of the traditions that we hold dear today came from that era. That's the connection because really actually that's all about gathering and connecting with people through communication and telling people what they mean to you. That's why we have those traditions is giving us something to come together around at Christmas time. Then there's the story of abundance which is very much the late 20th century, 21st century version of Christmas, which our great-grandparents wouldn't recognise. The very commercialised Santa in the red suit and the Coca-Cola lorry and all of that stuff. And I guess in individual homes, it's the presents around the Christmas tree, which can be a wonderful thing. You know, it's an amazing time to celebrate our bounty and share those good things that have come into our lives with other people. But also in many ways, it has gone to an extreme that's the story of abundance and then the story of heritage which is very individual to different families for some people it's very very strong traditions that they have because of their cultural background because of what their grandparents used to do when they're a child and they still the kind of rhythms and routines that they have at Christmas those kinds of things it might be to do with the weather the climate where you live that you eat a particular food because it's very hot on Christmas day all those kinds of things and if you talk to people there's an exercise in Calm Christmas which helps you understand how much each of these matters to you and you come up with what's called your Christmas constellation which is unique to you and if you talk to anybody and I encourage you to talk to the people close to you who you'll be spending Christmas with about these five stories and figure out what's their Christmas constellation and if you overlay them you suddenly have a much better understanding at a glance of why the other person behaves as they do at Christmas why they throw themselves into it or step on the sidelines why do they get cross or niggly or they're joyful all these things actually you can see in a glance at the diagram that you come up with if you create your Christmas constellation when I've done it live with people because this book came out in the UK last year and so I had workshops in bookshops and things and sat around with people and we did this together and it was incredible we have you know a mother and a daughter who suddenly look at each other and go oh oh now (laughs) I get it and it's not just about 
understanding what the other person likes and wants so that you can do that for them and ignore your own Christmas. It's about understanding that everybody needs something and some things, perhaps crucially, some things matter more than the other things. So a lot of things can fall away and you wouldn't really notice because there's just this one particular thing, the magic element of Christmas, perhaps, if that's what's most important to you. But if you sprinkle some of that over your Christmas, that's what you're going to remember. And the other stuff doesn't really matter very much. Or if you know that your partner or your child is absolutely fascinated by a particular aspect of Christmas, then you can make it a gift to them that even if you don't care about it, you go out of your way to do something to support that part of Christmas that they love, that story of Christmas. And it's just a really lovely way of talking to each other about how to make Christmas calm and meaningful and special to everybody without it becoming an argument or a kind of fight for who gets what they want. So I hope it helps. (laughs) Or just, you know, falling into the trap of perfect and striving for an ideal that's just impossible and completely overwhelming when we pursue it. Yes. Or the other way, which is we've always done it this way, so we have to do it. The tradition that actually nobody knows where it came from or why you still do it because no one really wants to do it. But you've just never had a conversation about it. Like me and my husband, we ate turkey every Christmas since we were married until one day we realized we had a really bad Christmas, sat down, fed up at the end of it. And then he turned to me and said, well, I don't even like turkey. And I was like, what? Neither do I. And we've never <laughs> even had a conversation about turkey. So now we don't eat turkey at Christmas anymore. I think there are so many assumptions about Christmas, about how it should be, and also about how other people want it to be, that we don't have those simple conversations and actually find out. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I love about this Christmas constellation is, again, just being able to distinguish what are the different facets of Christmas that are even real possibilities to set aside or go deep with And I find myself, you know, this year, I'll be more intentional about magic, both for myself and with our kids, but also about heritage. And I think I saw, I don't remember which of your social sites this was on, but you were blogging now about winter and you've kind of asked your readership what they want to hear you write about. And so here's my response for what it's worth is about the, I guess I would almost use the word pagan or the historical origins of some of these traditions. They get wrapped up in Christianity, but if you go back, you know, some of them are mysterious or some of them are probably pagan or I don't know the others, Druid. (laughs) Yeah, the midwinter celebrations and bringing the light in at the darkest time of year and bringing in the evergreens and a lot of the herbs that we hang up. And I'm looking, I've got a string of bay drying in my kitchen which is traditional herb for valor. I was amazed how many people in the course of my research said to me, I don't celebrate Christmas in any way from what you would think is the traditional thing. I love midwinter. I celebrate the solstice, you know, the turning of the year, all those things. And they're really precious. There's nature again. Oh, look, it's funny. It keeps coming up. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. And to me, heritage, although of course it can mean a family, you know, maybe our cultures, traditions and heritage. I'm interested to know some of those broader, deeper mysterious perhaps origins but yes the the call out was actually for my podcast i'm creating a podcast that will run from end of october to january and i was asking for yeah what people wanted me to talk about and also any particular things that people want to learn about and that is one of the things i'm going to be doing it's doing the origins of different aspects of christmas because it is fascinating and and i think again we kind of adopt these things like yeah i put christmas tree up in our house where does that come from Why do we cut down trees and put them inside our house? For some people for a month, for some people three days. And why do some people put them up on November the 28th? And some people put them up on Christmas Eve and all these things. It's really interesting because there are human stories behind each of these things and the evolution of them. But also 
by looking back and realizing that things have changed over time, it kind of gives us permission to change it now again if it's not working. It's just an evolution. That's right. And through awareness and through choice. And again, that's part of what I love about this book is it's really practical. I mean, it's not a panacea. It's not a magic wand to just go buy the book and your Christmas will never have been better. <laughs> just right. It does require the reading and the thoughtfulness and the deliberate effort. But what you've talked about with mindful gift giving, you know, your insights and advice about that or about acknowledging that Christmas can be a really melancholy time. Yeah. For Absolutely. many of us, I thought that was really insightful and very beneficial for me. So thank you for including that. It's my pleasure. And it is absolutely not a book about Christmas has to be merry. Here are the 10 things you need to do. It's about reflecting on what you need your, want and need your experience of Christmas to be this year and what you want Christmas to become over the years. You know, whether you have children, whether your children have flown the nest and you need it to be a different kind of thing. It's very much about figuring out what works for you. Yeah, awesome. Okay, well, Beth, with your permission, I want to go ahead and transition us to the Enlightening Lightning Round. Does that work for you? Sure. Okay, and how are you doing, by the way? I'm doing good, thank you. Okay, good. All right, so again, this is a series of brief questions on a variety of topics. My aim is to ask the question and for the most part to let you answer as long as you want to stand aside for me. I might pull on one of your responses here and there, but for the most part, I'll work to keep us moving through this. Sound good? Okay. Question number one, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. <laughs> Life is like a book that you write as you go. Absolutely. Okay. Number two, here I'm borrowing the famous investor and technologist Peter Thiel's question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? That freedom is a choice. Okay. Question number three. If you were required, and I know this might be a stretch, but if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? You are amazing. All right. That's not talking about me. That's talking about the people looking at my t-shirt, right? <laughs> <laughs> Fairly about you as well. That's fair. Okay. Question number four. What book other than your own have you gifted or recommended most often? Oh, aren't books the best presents? I love giving books to people. It changes. I really get into a book and I give it to lots of people. But also, I think books are incredibly personal. So I do try and match it with people. I would say anything by Mark Nepo, giving away a lot of his books, they're beautiful. I love Silence by Erling Kager. I don't know if you've read that. By the explorer who has walked across the poles and he talks about, obviously he had no one to talk to. And he goes deep on the benefits of silence and his writing is beautiful. He's Norwegian. That's a fantastic book. I haven't heard of that book. It's really lovely. I'll definitely, definitely look at it. Mark Nepo has been a guest on the show. Oh, you're kidding me. Yeah. And in fact, what you were talking about with Wabi Sabi reminded me of something he said in our conversation where he talked about common writing advice is to write what you know, but he has always written what he wants to know or what he needs to know. And in that way, his books become his teachers. Wow. That's absolutely. Absolutely. Maybe different with a novel, quite what you know, but to some extent you have to research. But with nonfiction, I think if you think you know it and you only write that, then you're absolutely limiting yourself to this huge experience. I think Elizabeth Gilbert said, I would follow Mark Nepo's words wherever they want to take me. And he's just, the way he sees the world is incredible. It's, his words are poetry, actual poetry, and also just poetry. He's amazing. So I would yeah. recommend him. And talking to Elizabeth Gilbert, I love Big Magic as well. That's a great book. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah. I love her whole thing about fear will always be in the vehicle. You just <laughs> yeah. can't let it sit behind the wheel. <laughs> yes. 
That's great. Okay. Well, I feel like I kind of interrupted your flow there when you were saying, so you talked about silence, you talked about Mark Nepo, you mentioned Elizabeth Gilbert, any other books that come to mind as a response to common gifts or recommendations? It's funny because I often give away books that I have. I buy books for people, but also like I had a lady in my house last week who was talking about a house she owns in California that needs complete renovation and she hasn't done anything to it. And she, you know, we're just talking about it. And I just read House Rules by Erica Baumeister. So she's a New York Times bestselling novelist, but she's written a, a book about renovating a house in Port Washington and about what it taught her about life and family. And it's a really lovely book. And so I just went up to my bedside table having just finished it and just gave it to her. So I quite often do that. And I love to, I love the idea of setting up a little stall one day full of books and just get people to come along and say what's bothering them and just give them a book because I've read so many I think it's what I do with most of my spare time and so I don't always have an answer but I've always got a book recommendation for you (laughs) (laughs) that's great well and on that topic what are you reading right now what am I reading I'm reading about 15 books at once because I'm trying to research for Kokoro but I actually just ordered I just arrived today the Midnight Library by Matt Haig who's a best-selling British writer and it's a novel and it says on the back would you have done anything different if you had the chance to undo your regrets and it says between life and death there is a library and there's this lady who's stuck in this midnight library and she has the chance to make things right that she regrets and the books somehow I don't know because I've not read it enable her to live as if she'd done things differently but then obviously there's different consequences and here we are back to the matrix i think <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it always comes back to the matrix <laughs> yeah but i've gone a long time without reading any novels and then all of a sudden i'm really into novels and it's curious you know like you, you go through a period of really wanting to read autobiographies or travel books or something That's right, right now I'm into stories maybe it's escapism yeah. thing <laughs> i think this i'm going to interrupt my own enlightening lightning round rule for a moment because I think I'll just say this. Do you find that there is something in books that is similar to the joy of learning words in Japanese? That's like, I didn't know that radical was part of that character that had that etymology or whatever. It's like there's these subtle connections between the characters and even their components that make learning the words a joy. But that same thing exists in quotations and books and, you know, all these different. Do you find it's kind of an abstract Yes. And I had never thought about it. And as you're talking, I'm thinking, yes, that. And also there's a joy in the fact that you make all these connections, learn one more character and go, oh, oh, so that's why that looks like that. That's why that looks like that. You read a book, it's like, oh, that's why that works like that, et cetera, et cetera. And also with every new character you read, every new book that you read, it's like the vastness gets bigger of what you don't know and what's left to explore, which is terrifying and exciting. Same time. I'm totally with you. Yeah. I have a friend who we had this discussion and he suggested this image of a circle. And as your circle of knowledge expands, so does the circumference of the outside of the circle, which is then bordering the unknown. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Yes. That's so true. And that's really funny because when I was at university, I used to think of it as there's this really long park bench And, you know, in the beginning, when you start learning Japanese, it's not an easy language at all, but it's quite easy to learn the first few because you don't have any in your head. And so there's quite a lot of space for them. And you get to a point where there's not much space left. You keep learning, you keep learning, you get to a point where to add one character, one has to fall off the other end of the bench. Like it's as if there's like a, a limit to how many characters can sit on your bench. But I like the idea of it being more of a circle that can expand because actually, yeah, it isn't limited. It's more about the extent to which you're immersed, I think. When I had children and couldn't go to Japan for a few years and 
was working in a different industry and didn't speak Japanese for, you know, on a daily basis. Of course, my spoken Japanese is completely different to when I'm living and working and negotiating contracts and spending all my time living in Japanese language and dreaming in Japanese language. And then it's interesting because that has a huge impact on your confidence, even though you know that it's in there and you know you learned it before so you can easily relearn it again. I think you compare yourself to that peak moment, but you were learning other things like how to be a parent at that time. That's right. You know, and then you can come back and learn it again and it does come back in. And that is the same with books. We learn things that seem absolutely vital at a particular point in our life and then we move into another phase we don't really think about that meditation book that was everything for six months and then you know 10 years later maybe we realize we need some meditation in our lives again and it's funny they're always there like the books they've always been sat in the library they're just patiently waiting for you to come along when you need them just like the Japanese dictionary full of its characters yeah I really love that and I often think about that you know whether it's with the characters or books you know or the things in them about I think it was Feynman's I don't know if it was his autobiography titled the joy of finding things out and there really is this joy to it I don't think everybody necessarily feels that in their everyday life I think we get so busy that it's very easy to become narrow in our focus and think that we can only learn about a certain number of things when actually as soon as you get curious and step outside of that narrow path I think there's a real joy in learning stuff because it's interesting, not because yeah. it's going to get you something. And often Absolutely. the things that are interesting end up getting you something, but that's not yeah. the reason, you know? Yeah, that's right. I think there was one other thing on that with, I had some compassion. You talk about forgetting the language when you're not using it, which is so normal and how it's always still there, which then makes me think about the concept. I understand it's most attributed to Plato about anamnesis, where all learning is really just remembering yeah. in the first place yeah. that, it, that it's all there. But I also have more compassion, you know, when I forget anything, including Japanese words or characters, when I see foreign students, Japanese students who come here to the States to study and they forget and they're native speakers. Yes. <laughs> yes. And a lot of people are forgetting how to write because they're only on the computer or on their phones and characters are complicated and you have to practice them to keep them alive in your handwriting. Yes. Yeah, so many Japanese people have said the same. I do still send handwritten letters and postcards back and forward with some of my oldest friends, often people who are much older than me that were kind of parent figures when I was there as a teenager. And it's absolutely beautiful to see them keeping up their handwriting and also their traditions, you know, the way that they open a letter with a certain phrase because that's what's going on in the season here we are again and there are very specific things that you say at the beginning of a letter in depending on the time of year and there's a loveliness in that and that the something about writing by hand there's a depth to it that you don't get on the computer's quick and I do often you know I always edit you know I do a lot of work for my books on the computer but I make my best notes on paper with a pen for sure yeah no doubt in that whole tradition of you know the Japanese calligraphy and the hand-drawn characters yeah and the connection that exists there and so it's really magical and in the sense of for me it reaching back into antiquity or into time immemorial where I remember when I first learned the Japanese characters that my teacher who was native Japanese shared her memory of learning the characters from her grandfather wow. who taught them to her on the beach as he would write with a stick in the sand. Wow. And I just thought, how many individuals has this been passed through, you know, and the mystery of who originated it. And to me, it's so beautiful. Yeah. 
So, okay. Look at that. I took us on a huge tangent during the lightning, lightning round <laughs> <laughs> on books. Okay. Without even telling me what you're reading right now. Yeah, that's right. What am I reading right now? Well, I had been reading Calm Christmas until today. I am reading a book by James Nestor. He's written a book called Breath that I'm really enjoying. I'm also reading a book, You Are Not So Smart, <laughs> about our biases, our, most of them unconscious. I'm reading a book called Create and Orchestrate. That is a book about entrepreneurship that I'm really quite enjoying. And yeah, I too have at any given time about a dozen books going. Oh, and then I'm reading Roald Dahl's The Witches. Oh, it's amazing. It's amazing. And he wrote by hand two yes. hours a day. In six a shed. Sharpened pencils. In a yeah. shed at the end of his garden. Yeah. <laughs> because I just finished, it took me about nine months reading aloud to two of my daughters, the entire Harry Potter series. Wow. I am so excited about that. We haven't started yet. Was yeah, it the best? It was a joy. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. My daughters are 13 and nine. And How long it was it really special. I think it took about 300 hours of reading. Wow. So it was about nine months. That series is a million 74,000 words. Wow. Is that incredible? That's amazing. That so, so many children read it as well. I that know. many words, it's wonderful. I was surprised how many curse words were in it, <laughs> honestly. It, it gets dark and more cursy quite quick, yeah. about halfway through, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it does. Okay, question number five. So this is about travel. You know, back in the good old days when we did that kind of thing. <laughs> when you traveled, what is something you do or take with you to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? Noise-canceling headphones moisturizer for my hands, washi tape. Do you know washi tape? No, what is this? Japanese stationery is amazing. And they were the inventors of something called washi tape, which is sticky tape, if it's actual real washi tape made of washi, which means Japanese paper, very light level of stickiness. So you can tear it easily and use it to stick things on the wall without making a mark, but you can also use it to decorate a journal, that kind of thing. I love it when I'm traveling to stick in tickets or, you know, whatever, like you'd use a prick stick or a glue stick. Oh yeah. And it's really pretty. It's all sorts of patterns. It's really pretty. It's a very cute japanese -y thing, but also you can use it to mend your glasses or, you know, when you're traveling, it's one of those fix everything, Yeah. really pretty little things to have in your bag. So I always have washi tape and yeah, of course great. a notebook and a pen. Yes. Awesome. All right. Thank you. Okay. Question number six, what's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? I started getting up at five o'clock in the morning. My husband and I, he trained as a Pilates teacher and I trained as a yoga teacher over the last year and through lockdown and the pandemic. And with our children at home, homeschooling, five o'clock in the morning is the only time to study. And we've both finished now and qualified, but we're still getting up at five o'clock in the morning. It's really amazing time of day. It's very dark here now there, so it's getting slightly later, but through the summer, it was just beautiful. And yesterday I actually took my, my husband went for a run, came back, and he was like, there's so many stars outside. So I went upstairs and got my eldest daughter up. She's like all bleary eyed and still in her PJs and put on a coat and wellies and made a jam sandwich <laughs> and went out for a walk to hunt stars. And we saw so many shooting stars. It was incredible. 
And then we saw this line that looked like shooting stars. And I don't know what they were. And people have been saying that it might have been Elon Musk's satellite chain or <laughs> it might have been a meteor shower. I don't know what they were. She thought they were these fairies sent on a mission by Princess Mermaid who couldn't leave the sea. And I thought hers was much better suggestion. <laughs> I like that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, getting up quite, you know, early in the morning before the children wake up is really precious time of day, even if you just sit and have a cup of tea. And I've stopped watching the news. I don't watch the news. I read the news on my phone, but I don't ever watch the news. Wow. Amazing. Okay. Thank you. Question number seven. Yeah. What is one thing you wish every American knew? Oh, 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 what a question. That your election is all of our election, but we have no say in it. So please make a good choice. <laughs> yes. Question number eight, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work? These are really good questions. <laughs> that listening is about understanding, not about giving you time to formulate what you want to say. And that looking someone in the eyes makes all the difference. She says on audio, having switched off yeah. her video for the podcast. No, that, that reminds me. Our youngest is six years old and we have a son who's 13. And in our bedtime routine, I will say to Maya, Maya is our youngest. I'll say, Maya, you know, go tell Zach goodnight. Go tell the cat goodnight, so forth. So she goes in last night to tell Zach goodnight and he's busy playing a video game. And she says, goodnight, Zach. I love you. And he just responds, you know, goodnight. I love you, Maya. And she says, eye contact. <laughs> At six. That's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's six. So, yeah. Okay. That's great. Uh, uh, all right. And last question here mm. in the enlightening lightning round, which is, is now about money. So, aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money? Or what's one thing you're always sure to do with it or you never do with it? I think I've learned that it's a tool, it's not the point. Mm. That's really important. Yes. You can do really good things with money, as I'm sure you know very well. Yeah. It's incredible tool to do all sorts of good in the world and good in your life. But if it becomes the point, then everything falls apart. Yeah. I think that's one of those things that on the surface, it can sound really simple, but there's an incredible depth to be understood in that statement. Okay. So if people want to learn more from you or they want to connect with you, what would you have them do? Read my books. I think for a writer, that's the... So much goes into writing a book and there's so much to, if you ever read a book more than once, you'll see books have many, many layers and the things I want to say about in the world, I put in my books. So please do read them. If you want to find out more about me, you can find me at bethkempton.com. If you want to find out about the courses that we run, including courses for writers to help you land a book deal with a deal winning book proposal, then you can find me at dowhatyouloveforlife.com. Or if you want to come and say hello, I'm usually on Instagram at Beth Kempton. Awesome. I do have just a few last questions about creativity and writing, if you're still good for that. Absolutely. I want to talk okay. about your books. <laughs> okay. Okay. So right before we do that, I'll say this here to make sure that I don't forget it. As a thank you to you, Beth, for making time to share of your experience and your insight with me and everyone listening, I have gone to the micro lending site, kiva.org, and I have made a $100 micro loan to a woman entrepreneur in Fiji named Lavinia, who will use this money to set up a canteen business. So well, she, that's cool. Yeah. So this will help improve the quality of life for her family and people in her community. So thank you for giving me a reason to, to make that micro loan. Thank you for doing it. My pleasure. Okay. So I had a short list of questions I had intended to ask you about writing, things about your own writing routines, things about what you teach those that you teach writing to, understanding that you offer 
a masterclass in a book proposal development, you know, these things. But I think this was before we started recording. Maybe it was in the interview. You asked me about my book, the book that I have in development. I shared with you about how, you know, I feel a little stuck in this project right now. I haven't got a deal. I haven't got a deadline even to get it done. And you had suggested maybe we explore that a little bit. So given that, I'm inclined to indulge myself a bit by taking advantage of your offer. But there's still something about that that doesn't seem right to me. I mean, I do want to be sure this serves a listener. And I think they'd be interested in that. Yeah, let's think about this. My understanding is that many of your listeners are either writers or very smart people with interesting things to say about the world, or as Mark Meepo said, things they want to discover about the world. And writing is a good excuse to do that and sometimes get paid for it. And so having you share your example is definitely of service to people who maybe have a book dream, but have never said it out loud or are also stuck or want to understand how you shift from the stuckness to a sense of possibility. Because so much about writing a book is about clarity, but clarity is also overrated. And we'll talk about that, I'm sure. But clarity and confidence. And anyone can write a book Anyone can get a book published, but you need to understand that a book doesn't live in a vacuum. A book lives in a world of readers. A book lives in a commercial market if you want to get it published. There's just some ways of figuring out how to present your ideas so that you get the backing you need to write the book that you want to write and the support you need to get it into the hands of the people who are going to read it. Because if no one's going to read it, you might as well write a journal, right? You want to write something because you want people to read it because you want to help them. So it's really important that you get it into the hands of people and actually often thinking about how you're going to do that. It's not something you do at the end of the process. If you do that early on in the process, it makes all the difference to how real your book feels to you as the writer. And that sense of it feeling real is often where confidence comes from. So I think it's really important to talk about it. And sometimes you have this idea of a book in your head and then you have to say it to somebody and explain it like, oh, God, that sounds rubbish. Or no, that's not quite what I meant. But those are the only words I have right now. That's really, really good because it starts with a vague idea. So please share what you've got. Yeah. No, thank you. Thank you for that. So let me frame it this way. I have written a manuscript. It's 108,000 words, which is longer than a book needs to be (laughs) for sure. I've had an editor, a very talented editor who's worked with the marketing guru, Seth Godin, and many other talented authors make one editorial pass and gave me some great insight. So I've definitely got the resources. I believe I have the talent. As you said, anyone can publish a book. I could basically go self-publish this thing today. But where I feel stuck, it's a two-part that I think is one thing. I had a conversation with the best-selling author, Ryan Holiday, you know, the guy that wrote Obstacle is the Way and Ego is the Enemy and this kind of thing. And in the conversation, he said to me, your book needs a concept that will grab a reader by the throat and make them say, I've got to read that book. And when they have that, they've got to tell somebody about it. Now, as a concept, that sounds really nice. If that were easy, every book would have it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And I have some models that I look to books like The Artist's Way, you know, where Julia Cameron writes a book that can be done independently or in community. And it has a real benefit to the reader. It's not just somebody pontificating, navel-gazing. So I look at this book, and maybe I'm in this perfectionistic trap of saying, I don't want to just regurgitate you know, material. I'm not channeling you know, God's divine wisdom, as far as I know. <laughs> a lot of what I'm saying is borrowed, right? It's filtered through my experience and hopefully in my voice and that kind of thing. 
So this, when I say it's two part, one is I don't want to just say what's already been said before. I don't think the world needs more noise. That's the first part. The second part is not having the sense that I found the concept that will grab the reader by the throat and make them want to read the book and then tell all their friends once they have. So I have an idea for this to have a leadership or a contribution project that people would actually take on as they work through the book. But that's about where I'm stuck. So I've got all the words on a page for the most part, but I'm missing the concept and I'm not sure the world really needs this book. That's so interesting. I bet there's so many people going, oh yeah, I totally, totally get that. Totally get it. So I think what's happened is that you have somehow managed to show the kind of dedication that most people can't find in their day and in 108,000 words when you don't know what your topic is. That's an unbelievable achievement, right? So what you know from that is that you can write a book, that you have a lot to say. That's so, so important. Ryan Halliday is absolutely right. You need a concept. But I think what's really important not to do is to try and force that concept too fast. So I always say a book starts off as a blob. It's this amorphous blob of you've got a sense of it. You know, there's something there. It feels important enough for you to want to dedicate a big chunk of time to turning it into a book because it does take a lot of time, but you can't articulate what it is. That's a really, really important stage of the process. And there's one particular exercise that I have in my book, Pose and Masterclass, and I'm happy to talk you through it now very briefly, that gently helps to shape the blob without you forcing it into the shape you think it needs to be. Because if you're trying to pick pluck a concept out of the air, then essentially you're grabbing a shape and then you're forcing this thing into that shape. And that might not be what the book wants to be. Make no mistake, a book is a living, breathing thing. And it becomes what it wants to become. And you are the steward of that thing, right? So you absolutely have a book in you that the world needs that only you can write. But you have to allow yourself to open up to what the book wants to be. And it will show you what it wants to be. And that sounds really weird. And I'm very much an analytical person by personality and all of that. When I started to write books, I was blown away by what happens when you actually open up to the not knowing, to the not having to know what you're going to write. And it sounds like the most bizarre thing ever, but it's absolutely what happens. So to quickly share a story with you, perhaps to show that this is absolutely true. With my first book, Freedom Seeker, I basically had a meltdown just before I went on maternity leave with my second child. And I had five months off and I had no intention of writing a book, but I'd never had five months off in my life. And I had my baby and it was a really easy birth compared to the first one. And it was summer and it was blissful. I just spent five months walking up and down the beach where I lived with my baby going, what on earth just happened to me? I run a company called Do What You Love. I love what I do. How on earth did I just end up in this total ridiculous state? Not feeling free, which is crazy because I have all the tools I need. And I thought about this so much and it became this really big question that I felt maybe could be a book. And I pitched it because I had nothing else to do on maternity leave apart from look after two children, you know, as you do, I'll just write a book proposal. And I had a book deal with my dream publisher, Hay House, by the end of my maternity leave. It's crazy. And then I came back to work and I had a mountain of work to do. And I had a five month old baby and I didn't have any time to write my book, but I had a seven month deadline to submit my manuscript. And I think it was June, I got to March and I was still sat there every, you know, once a week, taking a couple of hours, going to sit in a cafe. 
And my husband's like, how are you getting on? Oh, you've still got an Excel chart open on your computer. <laughs> and it's me like moving around the chapter structure in my book, writing absolutely nothing, like 12 weeks away from my deadline. And I was just terrified. And I was like, I don't know how to write a book. I know how to make an Excel spreadsheet. So that's my comfort zone. And I'm stuck in my Excel spreadsheet. And you know what he did? He booked me a trip to Costa Rica, where I'd never been. He's like, you need an adventure. You need to get away and just go and see what happens. What a wonderful partner. <laughs> Honestly, I was blown away. And amazingly, my baby, by the time I went, it was late April. And she was born in July. So she stopped breastfeeding like the day before I went away. Like she knew. It was like everyone trying to help. It was amazing. So I went to Costa Rica for three weeks. And when I knew I was going, I didn't have much notice. And just a couple of weeks before the flight, and I was looking online at these hotels in Costa Rica and, you know, they're amazing. The yoga studios are open to the elements, no walls, you know, conical roof overlooking the jungle and the ocean, all this. And I saw this one particular one. I was like, I want to go there. And the hotel was full because it was all yoga retreat season. And I was like, please, you've got to find me a room. I'm coming to write a book. And my husband's just booked this and it's crazy. And so they found me a room and they knew by my explanation, I was asking for a desk and stuff. So they knew I was coming to write a book. And I got there and I, it was such an extraordinary thing to do, having been, you know, on maternity leave and had two small children. And suddenly I found myself in this paradise and I got to the hotel and the manager came up to me and she said, the weirdest thing has just happened. Every single person who was staying in this hotel has cancelled. You are the only guest in the whole hotel. Like one after another, they've fallen like dominoes. And so our entire team's here, the chef's here, everyone's here, and it's just you. And so we're going to put a writing desk in the middle of that yoga studio that you've seen on that picture. Right? No and way. so I'm playing Xavier Rudd, follow the sun on the speakers of this incredible yoga studio. They bring me fresh Costa Rican coffee every day. They put flowers on the desk, monkeys in the trees, there's jungle in the ocean. And I wrote 30,000 words in a week. Wow. And I also had what I didn't realize at the time was somebody told me when I explained it to them was a kundalini awakening in a yoga session at the beginning of that trip and when I was like what's one of those and when I looked it up afterwards and it said that often afterwards you either go into a deep depression or you have a massive burst of creativity and there we are manuscript wow. and almost nothing got changed from what I wrote there and Freedom Seekers full of stories of people and I think about half of them I met on that trip in Costa Rica, even though nobody was staying in my hotel. So there's like the owner of the hotel and the yoga teacher who came and a guy I met on the plane and all this stuff. And it's literally when you just go, I don't know how to do this. I'm open. Just tell me, help me, whatever you're talking to. It doesn't, you know, it's a partnership between you and the book that wants to be born. And so I think allowing yourself to not pin down this specific thing. And the beginning is really, really important. That is amazing. That is absolutely amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, it was crazy. And I have to say with Wabi Sabi, exactly the same thing happened in a place in Japan, in northern Japan. I talk about the House of Light in Wabi Sabi. And it's this beautiful house that basically if you were to hire it on your own, it's really expensive. But you basically say, I want to come and stay on this day. And then, you know, six other people say, we want to stay on that day. And so they split the cost of the house between whoever's coming as the guests. And I think we were destined to be four of us from the price that they quoted me. And then the day before I was going to arrive, they emailed me and said, the other people have all cancelled. Do you mind paying the full price? I was like, you seriously? I've got that whole house to myself again. It's exactly what just happened wow. in other places. The universe wants you to write. Like they want us <laughs> human beings to share our words. It's only explanation, I think. So, 
So that's going to happen to you. Just wait for it. But just to give you a quick, maybe you could make a note of these and then go and think about them afterwards. But I think I share with my students in the book Pose Masterclass 10 ways to shape the blob, right? And these are actual ways I've used to shape my own book blobs, right? So it's like Michelangelo kind of chipping away to reveal what's already there without necessarily knowing what it's going to look like. So the first one is really simple and I call it the chit chat method which is just imagining that a friend has said, oh, I heard you writing a book. What's it about? Reply to them. Just write down your explanation. Don't edit it, nothing. Just answer like you're talking to a friend, okay? I'm not going to suggest you do these now because it would take a while, but I'd love you to have a go and see where you get to. The second one is the movie method. So you pretend that you're a film executive who's pitching a screenplay inspired by your book. Wouldn't that be cool? Saying, think of it as X meets Y with a dash of Z, okay? That's a completely different way to come at your idea. It's also a really useful way of explaining it to certain kinds of people as a movie pitch, right? The third one is a bit more kind of serious to the content and the idea of the book. With anything that I create, a book or an online course or a workshop or anything, I always ask, what's my promise of change? So ask yourself, what's the promise of change for your book? So what do you promise that by the end of the book, what will be different for them? So it might be how they feel, what they know, what they understand, what they're inspired to do, what they've experienced through the experience of reading your book. There's no specific answer. If nothing's different for them by the time they read their book, they've wasted their time and you've wasted your time. So understanding what you're going to help them change is really important. The fourth one is the celebrity quote method. So imagine, you know, like on the front of Eat, Pray, Love, Julia Roberts said, I've given this to all my girlfriends. I'm sure that sold at least one million of the copies, you know, but that's nothing to do with what the book's about. But what would a really famous person say about your book to make people want to read it? Really interesting one to ask yourself. And then there's another one which can be really helpful is what I call the book doctor method. So imagine someone walks into a bookshop and says, I need a book about dot, 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 that's going to dot, dot, dot. And the bookseller says, I've got just the book for you. It's called, name of your book, and it's over in the section. And just try not to think about it. Try and just answer that question really quick and see what comes out. And then there's several others. There's pretending you're pitching to a magazine, which seems really forward when you haven't even written the book, but actually it can really help. Like firstly, what magazines would you pitch it to? Okay, what kind of articles do they want? What kind of titles do they use? And that can actually help you find, you know, a really snappy title, for example. You never know where these are going to lead you. One of them is really interesting to me. It's the Blinkist method. You know, the Blinkist app. Yeah, it's like a book in 10 minutes or something. Yeah, exactly. But interestingly, it's not like the blurb of the book. It doesn't kind of describe the book so that you want to buy it. It tells you what you actually learn in, you know, a few bullet points. In Blinkist app, it actually summarizes it into, you know, like a short essay. And I did this for Wabi Sabi. And then they've now put Wabi Sabi on Blinkist. Oh, that's so great. <laughs> it was very interesting to read it. How close did Blinkist come to the way you had <laughs> you had done it? I think it was about 80%. But actually, the bits that weren't overlapped is where I'd tried to overthink it. And they explained it in really simple language. And I'm like, wow. oh, yeah, okay, <laughs> that's really helpful. Another one that's really cool is to do the haiku method. So try and mm. explain your book as a three-line poem. And it seems a bit bonkers, but it kind of opens you up to say whatever you want, you know. Meditation method, take your blog for a walk, actually meditate on the idea of it for a while, see what comes up, and then look back on all those things that you said and think, right, this book as a single big idea, what is the driving issue, the challenge, the discovery, the answer, or some other kind of inspiration that you want to share with the world? And you need to write that in like one to three sentences to explain the big idea behind your book. And eventually you'll need to get that into one sentence, but you know, it takes a bit more work than that. 
And if you do this kind of shaping the blob, but still by the end of it, not forcing yourself to have it something that is pitchable, then the next thing I suggest you do is to do a market analysis and figure out where your book sits in the market and who your competitors are, what other books are out there and why your book is better or different. And that feels really premature, but it's unbelievable how much it brings it to life. And you realize, well, actually, that's a great book and it was a bestseller, but it doesn't do this. Or for me, for example, in There's loads of books about Japanese culture written by Zen monks, and they're incredibly well-placed to write them. But they don't have the experience of a working woman with a business and two children trying to bring these life lessons into the world. Well, instantly, I've understood that that's an important differentiator for me. And so if you then work on the blob idea, look at the market analysis, and you will have to in a book proposal share, you know, 10 to 15 competitor books. And you want to be sharing books that have done really well because you need to show there's a market. And a lot of people fall down by saying there's no book like mine in the market. That's not a good thing for a publisher. Yeah, there's a reason for that. Maybe (laughs) nobody wants your book. (laughs) Exactly. So you want it to be align it with ones that have done well, you know, maybe a couple of obscure ones that bang on your topic, but mostly align it with ones that have done really well. So they can see when they're sat there in front of Barnes and Noble pitching your book, which somebody is going to do. Somebody is going to take your book proposal, which you need, by the way, you do need a book proposal. Someone's going to take that book proposal and they're probably going to be selling your book into Barnes and Noble before most people would have finished the manuscript. Because a big thing you need to know for nonfiction is you don't need a manuscript. You need a book proposal because often the publisher wants to work with you to shape the book, right? So your proposal is a sales document for all sorts of different people internally in the publisher and then to the retailers and all those kinds of people. And so the person selling it to Barnes & Noble will often only read your book proposal. They won't ever read your manuscript because it won't be finished by the time they need to finish their job. And so it needs to be that clear that they can basically take what you've written and stand up in front of that sales rep and go, this is why this book's going to be the smash hit of 2022, whatever, you know. If you work through those simple exercises, I mean, that's just the beginning of a book proposal, but I think that will really help you get to where Ryan was saying you need to get to, which is absolutely true, but without forcing it. And you've written a manuscript that's amazing. Put it in the drawer. Come at it from a perspective of writing a pitch to somebody who's going to buy into your idea, remembering that part of it is discovery. So you can't have all the answers yet because you need to go and discover them. And then think of your manuscript as an amazing resource of stuff that you've already figured out, but it's not everything. I would imagine if you've got to 108,000 words without being able to say your big idea, then you probably need to put it aside for a bit and see it more as if you had a blog that you'd then go and call on some of the, you know, your podcast stories, right? I've done all these podcast interviews. I'm not just going to stick the transcripts together and say there's a book, but there are stories in all of here and lessons that I could pull together and there's some less, but the big idea matters first. And then that's a resource that you draw on. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And when I look at this, and again, I know I'm not unique in it because I think many authors or would-be authors have doubts about their ability. They have doubts about the value of what it is they think they have to say. In some ways, you know, I feel like I do know the central idea. It's not honed, you know, to the single sentence compelling pitch, but about how, you know, life is messy, difficult, and painful. <laughs> and while there's no one size fits all, there are best practices, right? So if living is a skill at which we can improve, here are life's best practices. Immediately then. Okay, you want to go back and listen to that and write it down in that big idea method box because that sounds to me like the bones of a really good big idea. Yeah. And then immediately, I don't mean to protract this, but the thing about the inner critic coming up going, well, according to whom? And oh, well, you can prove anything with an anecdote, right? Or 
you know, the fact that if you can say it in language, it's not inherently true. It's opinion. Oh, it worked for you, but you're in a different circumstance. You're independently wealthy, you know, whatever. You don't have kids. Like people could say, which I do, right? But then the inner critic is just so damn loud. How do you push past? I mean, because it's one thing to get clarity, but even if you have clarity, it's another to persist in the face of the inner critic. How do you manage that? Absolutely. Well, that's where a book proposal really helps you because you have to make the case for yourself to a publisher, for example, or an agent if you're going down that route. And you have to ask yourself a bunch of questions to make it really clear. Depending on what kind of book you're writing, you do need to have a specific position that puts you in a position of authority. But I know that you want to write nonfiction book, which is essentially like life guidance, right? So you need to be an authority. You're already an authority as the host of this podcast. That kind of thing completely counts. And the people that you've interviewed, some of your guests, if they've come on your show, then you've got something really important to give. And actually, being a podcast host of a podcast that is really, really great, you ask such good questions and really listen and pull stories out of people, then that's a really important skill as essentially a curator. And you can be a curator in a nonfiction book. So lots of people write, say like a pop science book. It's not the scientist who writes it. It's a lot of journalists write books. They're not the experts, but they're very good at finding the experts and pulling the data out of those and then sharing those stories in a way that the scientists couldn't communicate to people, distilling information into these very tight, easily understandable 10, don't want to say rules for life because that's already a best-selling <laughs> book, but you know, yeah. that kind of thing. And so if you understand your role in the creation of the book, then you can figure out how to make yourself very clearly an authority in doing that job. And having a platform is huge. And the platform is not just social media. This is a massive point that I think gets in the way for so many writers. Your Instagram following is not your platform. Your platform is so many other things. It's any way that you communicate with people who would read your book. And so in your particular circumstance, your platform includes your incredible network. Even if you just asked everyone who's ever been on your blog to share about your book, you've instantly reached probably over a quarter of a million people, I would imagine, right? So through their networks. So if you've got close relationships that you can leverage to help you get your message out in the world, all that goes in your book proposal and helps support why you are uniquely placed to deliver this specific message. And in your case, it's very easy to say, I was born into a wealthy family and so people are just going to go, it's all right for you. But actually, it's really interesting for the majority of us who have never seen what that kind of a life looks like. And to know that you've had that experience and still chosen to seek, I don't want to use the word better because that's a judgmental, but you know, you're clearly not just going, thank you very much. I'm going to live in my nice house and do nothing with my life. You're going, the world's interesting and I'm curious about how do we make the most of this experience living on this planet? That's really interesting. And you have access to conversations with the kind of people that a lot of authors wouldn't get near as easily as you will. And I think those are massive strengths. And for people who are listening, who are like, yeah, but I'm not brilliant Miller, so I don't have that. And then I'm back to my don't have an Instagram following. <laughs> you know, is your aunt a national newspaper journalist? Do you know somebody who is X, Y, Z? Everybody knows people. If you absolutely don't, 
which is sometimes the case. You're like, you know what, I've been a hermit all my life and I hate social media and I've never talked to anybody. Then it's really important to understand that the point will come if you want people to read a non-fiction book, you are part of the way it gets out in the world. So I think fiction's a bit different. You can have an absolutely amazing debut novel. Nobody knows who you are and it's New York Times bestseller list. But with the reality of non-fiction is the author is part of the selling of that book. And so you just need a commitment to do it. So, you know, start yeah. your Instagram now, today, <laughs> yeah. get cracking. Yeah. Starting a podcast is brilliant because outsiders can't really tell how many downloads you've had or how many listeners you've had, but you can build up your interviewing skills. You can build up your speaking skills with a small audience to start with. And then, you know, by the time you come to finish your book proposal 18 months from now, you've got three seasons of a podcast under your belt with all these interviewers, interviewees that you can reach out to for support. So there are so many ways that we can create our own opportunities to be an authority, as well as the actual, you know, the normal things like qualifications and things you've studied and particular life experiences. They all put you in a particular position where you see the world in a certain way. And that's worth writing about and sharing. Yeah, absolutely. And as you've mentioned, I love the way you phrase this. If you're not going to share it with people, you might as well write a journal and how this marketing and promotion, which can sometimes feel icky, especially to creatives, I think, and artists. But the reality is we want people to receive our work and to benefit and enjoy it and to start now. And it's not a serial process, meaning we don't birth the manuscript and get it published and then go to market, but they're parallel. And that was something that Ryan Holiday also said that changed my view of this a little bit of saying, build a platform. He's like, look, I could help you finish your book. But again, if no one knows about it or no one cares, it won't probably matter all that much to you. So what you're saying here is exactly in line with that. And it's good for me to hear again. So thank you. And the, the icky sales thing, everyone gets it. And I think I felt that for a long time until one day it just dawned on me that it's all a service. I hear people struggling in their life. And if I know something that can help them, I want them to know that. And if I've put that in a book, I want them to buy that book. Yes, I want them to buy the book because it's good for me and it helps put food on my children's table. But I want them to buy the book because then they can read the thing that's going to help them. And so when I'm doing my own promotion, I'm thinking about them. And if I sit here in my house and don't post anything, don't send a newsletter, don't come on a podcast, don't talk to anyone and go, oh, my book came out. Here's a copy for my mum. Then I've done that person a real disservice because I've got something that can help them and I've not given them. They might not buy it. That's fine. That's their choice. I've not given them the option to spend $15 and get something that's going to massively help them. And so I think if you can come at it from a service perspective, which is so in line with the way that many nonfiction authors operate in the world anyway, we're interested in answers that serve the human race, right? Then selling a book is a necessary transaction to get that support into the hands of the person who needs it. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I just came across this yesterday. The legendary copywriter John Carlton once said, or wrote, if you offer something that your prospect needs or wants, then shame on you if you don't use every tactic available to get your sales message across so the poor guy can justify buying it. Yes, <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. And, you know, it's funny, like at times like Black Friday and Cyber Monday, right? Lots of people go, oh, I hate all this commercialism. I'm not going to post anything on 
on social media this weekend. And for me, I'm like, all our courses are 50% off. For somebody who hasn't been able to afford it all year long, and I'm giving you a $400 course for $200, that's a service right there. Yeah. You know, So for me, staying off social media because I don't like the commercialism isn't helping that person who really needs my course for $200, right? So I think it is really important to understand that. And also for the majority of writers who need to get paid, not just through writing, but the other things that they do in order to be able to be in the world doing their research and writing their books. The process of your readers buying into what you do enables you to serve them more in the future. You're trying to build a career here. You don't have to sell lots of books to justify being a writer. I'm not saying that at all, but I'm saying if you want to build a career out of being a writer, at some point you need to have financial transactions as part of it. And so understanding that all of those in the early years support all good work you can do in the later years is really, really important as well, because then it stops it being about me and my ideas and trying to sell them to people who might not be interested. I mean, we love books. We're sitting here talking about yeah. books, right? Thank goodness <laughs> yeah. all those people. We, Erling Cargo wrote that book about silence. Thank goodness that Elizabeth Gilbert wrote that book about big magic, you know. That's right. And everyone, everyone has had their life transformed by a book. Yeah. Whether it's directly or by someone who's been a teacher or mentor or caregiver. So, so true. So absolutely. True. Well, a pleasure and a privilege. I'm really grateful to you for making time and for spending so much time to connect with me. I'm curious, what's the last thing? No pressure here, but if there's a final thought or piece of encouragement that you want to leave those listening with, whether it's about writing, creativity, life, Christmas, <laughs> anything, <laughs> what comes up right now? I think it's connected to all of those things, which is respect the ebb and flow of life. There are times for push and times for rest. There are times for productivity and times for letting things bubble. That's one thing. Don't expect to be able to churn out this stuff all the time or be on all the time in your work, or whatever. Respect the ebb and flow. And then think about what you really love and what you want to be spending your time doing. And then carve out the time and do it. Protect that time like a mama bear and just do it. That is how it all begins. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at briamiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.